Well, thank you, uh, one and all, to turning up for this uh, English language uh, seminar. I apologize uh, for the fact that you have to do that, um, because your English is going to be much, much better than my Norwegian, uh, which I reckon is about the level of a two-year-old at the moment. So, <laughs> I'm going to be talking about uh, escaping the closed universe. Uh, the closed universe is a way of describing the naturalistic or uh, materialistic worldview, uh, and looking particularly at uh, the ways in which C.S. Lewis engaged with that idea and how he moved uh, out of the closed universe of a, of a naturalistic worldview himself. We, of course, uh, tend to think of C.S. Lewis as a Christian academic, a uh, Christian writer of fiction and non-fiction, uh, apologetic works and so on, but Lewis uh, himself, after uh, being brought up Christian as a child, lost his childhood faith and considered himself uh, an atheist uh, for several years. Here's a quote from Lewis uh, in a letter to his friend Arthur Greaves from the 12th of October in 1916, and he says to his friend, I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them, and from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religions are merely man's own invention. Right? So it gives you a, uh, a clue as to his outlook at that stage. Um, Lewis at the back there had lost his childhood faith at boarding school, at Sherberg House boarding school, uh, becoming an atheist aged 14, uh, so about 1913. And his worldview underwent several shifts during the course of the 1920s, and he became a theist around about 1929, 30, and then later, uh, as a kind of second step, uh, a Christian theist in about 1930-31. In a famous essay published under the title The Free Man's Worship, published in 1903, the noted atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell asserted the following, that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. This is a classic expression of a naturalistic 
outlook on the world. And Lewis himself later wrote that Russell's essay, he said, I found a very clear and noble statement of what I myself believed a few years ago. And of course, this worldview is still with us. It's still the kind of dominant worldview of our Western culture. Uh, in the words of the British atheist Richard Dawkins, there is no design, because there's no God, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Just the, the workings of nature according to the laws of nature. On this view of the world, Lewis said that nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. Let me introduce you to two basic elements of a, a world view. The questions of what is real and how do we know anything. Uh, the what is real question is what philosophers will call ontology, that is our assumptions about the nature of reality, i.e. what sort of things exist. The question of how do we know anything, philosophers call epistemology. These are our assumptions about knowledge, about the nature of knowledge, what it is, how we get it. So what is real and how do we know anything? For example, since I'm in Norway, coffee clearly exists and we know that coffee exists. So let's think about the naturalistic ontology, the naturalistic view of what kind of things exist. As Lewis says, some people believe that nothing exists except nature, uh, a vast process in space and time which is going on of its own accord. And Lewis explains that according to naturalism, nothing ever has existed or ever will exist except this meaningless play of atoms in space and time. Talking of atoms, I have a little uh, chart here of different scientific theories of the atom uh, between 1803 and 1926. And all of these shifts in scientific theory of matter happened during Lewis's lifetime. But what remained constant, even till today, is this basic naturalistic view that whatever the ultimately true scientific description of atoms are, basically that's what exists. That the natural world is an uncreated and therefore unintended and closed system. That means every effect within the system has a cause within the system. It means that the fundamental physical elements of the natural world, whatever they turn out to be, are blind. That is, they lack conscious awareness. They lack intentionality. 
And it means that if anything exists that can't be described in the terms used by the naturalistic physical sciences, which is something denied by strict forms of naturalism, uh, as described by Lewis, but if it were to, then it must supervene on, that is, it must depend upon and be wholly determined by something that can be described in those terms. Uh, and this means that it is causally effete or ineffective. It doesn't make a causal difference to the closed system. Let me introduce you to the concept of location problems in philosophy. And we'll look at two location problems with naturalism that Lewis expounded. As Christian philosophers William Lane Craig and J.P. Morland explain, using this terminology that comes from the philosopher Frank Jackson. Given that naturalists are committed to a fairly widely accepted physical story about how things came to be and what they are, that story that we just reviewed. The location problem is the task of locating or finding a place for some entity, for example, semantic contents or mind or agency in that story. So locating something that you think is real within that naturalistic story. And the question is, can you locate it within the naturalistic story or not? And if you can't, perhaps that's a problem for the naturalistic story. So Lewis himself came to believe that naturalism is unable to solve several location problems, including those that concern the existence of values and the existence of reason. So let's start with Lewis on the location problem of value. Lewis, in his paper De Futilitate, says, it's widely believed that scientific thought does put us in touch with reality, whereas moral or metaphysical thought does not. On this view, when we say that the universe is a space-time continuum, we are saying something about reality. Whereas if we say that men ought to have a living wage. We're only describing our own subjective feelings. On this view, the world of facts without one trace of value and the world of feelings without one trace of truth or falsehood, justice or injustice, confront one another and no reproachment, no meeting uh, is possible. As the Scottish philosopher Jonathan Rowson explains, that the naturalistic worldview severed the connection between the good, the true, and the beautiful. It broke them apart so that you have a, a scientific truth severed from the ethics and aesthetics of the good and the beautiful. This comes into the uh, the worldview feature of how we know of epistemology according to uh, the naturalistic uh, way of describing that, which is often some form of what's called scientism, not science, but scientism. 
here's Bertrand Russell again. He says, whatever knowledge is attainable, we must be attained by scientific methods. And what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. Well, again, there are plenty of people around today who take the same view, who hold this scientific idea of how we know things. So, uh, atheist and chemist Peter Atkins says that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. Or atheist philosopher Alex Rosenberg says we trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. But Lewis thought that scientism has too narrow an understanding of knowledge because it could not accommodate moral and aesthetic knowledge or the intuition that logical principles required for rational argumentation are things that we know by intuition. Science doesn't do ethics. Science describes and predicts but ethics prescribes and obligates. Science will tell me what chemicals I need to put in the cocktail in order to murder the person who's going to drink it. Science will not tell me whether that is a good or bad thing for me to do. Russell again said, we judge that happiness is more desirable than misery goodwill than hatred, and so on. Such judgments may be elicited, raised by empirical experience, but, he says, it is fairly obvious that they cannot be proved by empirical experience. Well, the question is, is this so much the worse for ethics as a subject? Does this just entail sub subjectivism about right and wrong, and good and bad, and we just have to bite that bullet? Or is this so much the worse for scientism? Russell again, while it's true that science cannot decide questions of value, that is because they cannot be intellectually decided at all and lie outside the realm of truth and falsehood. Whatever knowledge is attainable must be obtained by scientific methods, and what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. But it seems that it really is true that some things are, objectively speaking, good. We discover that some things are good, for example. And there are plenty of atheist philosophers who will do a mighty fine job of defending that notion that we can discover that some things are good. Here's uh, British atheist Russ Schaefer-Landau. He says, some moral views are true, others false. And my thinking them doesn't make them so. They're not subjective realities. He says, individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. The best explanation of this is that there are moral standards not of our own making. In other words, moral standards that we discover in reality. But we didn't discover them through science. So that seems to me so much the worse for scientism as a view of knowledge. 
Uh, or when you just kind of see, to use that metaphor, that an argumentative form is logically valid, i.e. that if A then B, A will therefore B. This insight that, a, that an argument with that structure has a conclusion that must be true if both of the premises are true, you can't dismiss that insight as a mere subjective feeling because we don't know that through the scientific method. This is not something you infer from empirical experience. Indeed, you couldn't infer it because in logic we know necessarily truths. You can't infer to necessary conclusions. As Lewis says, you cannot produce rational intuition by argument because argument depends upon rational intuition. Proof rests upon the unprovable that just has to be seen. Or as the atheist Sam Harris puts it in our own day, intuition denotes the most basic constituent of our faculty of understanding. While this is true in matters of ethics, it's no less true in science. When we break our knowledge of a thing down, no, when we can break it down no further, the irreducible leap that remains is intuitively taken. Thus, the traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core. As any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies on intuition to find its feet. The point, I trust, is obvious. We cannot step out of the darkness without taking a first step. And reason, without knowing how, understands this axiom if it would understand anything at all. The reliance on intuition, therefore, should be no more discomforting for the ethicist than it has been for the physicist. Thus Lewis says the distinction that's made between scientific and non-scientific thoughts about things will not easily bear the weight that we're attempting to put on it in this scientific view of knowledge. So even as an atheist and a naturalist, Lewis rejected scientism. And this allowed him to take philosophical, metaphysical arguments seriously. Arguments such as the problem of evil argument against the existence of God. He says, several years before I read Lucretius, I felt the force of his argument, and it's surely the strongest of all, for atheism. Quote, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. And so, little by little, with fluctuations which I cannot now trace, I became an apostate, dropping my faith with no sense of loss, but with the greatest relief. And then Lewis spent his 19th birthday in the frontline trenches of World War I, before being wounded during the Battle of Arras, when a British creeping barrage crept the wrong way. As Douglas Gresham uh, records, as they advanced with bayonets at the ready, the barrage stopped advancing 
and began to come back towards them. To his helpless fury, Jack, C.S. Lewis, as he preferred to be called by the name Jack, but who is friends, Jack watched his men being blown to pieces in the constant roar of their own artillery support. Suddenly Jack saw a blinding light, everything went completely silent, and then the ground came up slowly and hit him in the face. Jack had been hit by both the concussion and shrapnel from a British shell. His trusted sergeant had been between Jack and the shell when it exploded and was blown to bits. For Lewis, evil was an objective fact. He said it's a real thing, a thing that's really there, not made up by ourselves. And Lewis believed that evil was something that any god worth the name ought not to permit. And that the existence of evil justified his atheism. As he explains in The Problem of Pain, if anyone had asked me, why do you not believe in God, my reply would have run something like this. If you ask me to believe that this universe is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good or evil, or else an evil spirit. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private invention of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, if he joins Bertrand Russell. <laughs> For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God didn't exist, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple, argued Lewis in Mere Christianity. If nature is the only thing in existence, then of course there can be no other source for our standards. They must, like everything else, be the unintended and meaningless outcome of blind forces. So Lewis is really arguing like this. One, if naturalism is true, nothing is objectively evil. Two, something is objectively evil, from which it follows deductively that three, therefore naturalism is false. As he expressed it in his paper De Futilitate, uh, the defiance of the good atheist, hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos, is really an unconscious homage to something in or behind that cosmos which he recognises as infinitely valuable and authoritative. The fact that he arraigns heaven itself 
for disregarding those values means that at some level of his mind he knows they are enthroned in a higher heaven still. And secondly, let's look at Lewis on the location problem of reason. To summarise his argument in this kind of uh, short syllogism form, premise, premise, conclusion form, uh, premise one, if naturalism is true, reason must be located within a naturalistic ontology. Premise two, reason cannot be located within a naturalistic ontology, from which it follows that therefore naturalism cannot be true. Now, this is a logically valid argument. If the premises are true, the conclusion must be. And the first premise is just true by definition. That's what it means for naturalism to be true. So it all depends on this second premise here. And Lewis gives several arguments in defence of that crucial second premise. Lewis observes that acts of thinking are no doubt, no doubt events, but they're very special sorts of events. They are about something other than themselves, and they can be true or false. However, says Lewis, physical events are not about anything and cannot be true or false. Hence, thinking and reasoning events in our minds cannot be nothing but events in our brains, because the former possess qualities that the latter does not. The quality of being about something and the quality of being true, say. Uh, Lewis says, we're compelled to admit between the thoughts of a terrestrial uh, astronomer and the behaviour of matter several light years away, that particular relation we call truth. But this relation has no meaning at all if we try to make it exist between the matter of the star and of the astronomer's brain, considered as lumps of matter. The brain may be in all sorts of relations to the star, no doubt. It's in a spatial relation and a time relation. And, but to talk of one bit of matter as being true about another bit of matter seems to me to be nonsense. Alex Rosenberg, who I quoted earlier in his book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality, uh, says, we have thoughts about things. He says, consciousness tells you in no uncertain terms what the content of your thought is, what your thought is about. It's, say, about the statement that Paris is the capital of France. That's the thought you're thinking. It just can't be denied. You can't be wrong about the content of your thought. Your thought might be wrong about something, but you can't be wrong about knowing what you're thinking. You are thinking it. You're thinking Paris is the capital of France, right? And you know it. But Rosenberg also states that purely physical realities cannot be about anything. 
says, no chunk of matter can just by itself be about another chunk of matter without a mind to interpret the first chunk of matter as being about the second chunk, such as a map. But you need a mind to interpret that map. It says the brain can't have thoughts about Paris or about anything else for that matter. He says piling up a lot of neural circuits that are not about anything at all can't turn them into a thought about stuff out there in the world. He says one clump of matter can't be about another clump of matter. He seems very clear about this. So here is a Rosenbergian argument against materialism. Premise one, we have thoughts about things. That seems pretty hard to deny, that premise. <laughs> premise two, purely physical material realities cannot have thoughts about anything. Conclusion, therefore, we are not purely physical material realities. Because the problem is that Alex Rosenberg is a materialist who thinks that we are purely physical material realities. Here's another argument from Lewis. In the statement, I believe X because of Y, two different relations might be meant by the words because of. So there's the relation of physical cause and effect, as in the expression, grandfather is ill today because cause and effect. He ate lobster yesterday and the lobster was off. But then we have the relation of logical ground and logical consequent. As in the inference, grandfather must be ill today because, ground consequent, because he hasn't got up yet and we know that he is invariably an early riser when he is well. Failure to get out of bed doesn't cause grandfather to be ill nor does it cause us to conclude that he is ill. Rather, it is our grounds for making the logical inference that he is ill. Here's Russell again. Man is a part of nature, not something contrasted with nature. His thoughts and his bodily movements follow the same laws that describe the motions of stars and atoms. But here's the atheist, contemporary atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel, pointing out that if we can reason, it is because our thoughts can obey the order of logical relations among propositions. So as Lewis said, if what we think at the end of our reasoning is to be a valid conclusion, the correct answer to the question, why do you think this, must begin with the ground consequent sense of that because, on the other hand, every event in nature under a naturalistic worldview must be connected with previous events in the cause and effect relation in the closed universe. But 
if naturalism is true, our acts of thinking are events in nature. Therefore, the true answer to why do you think this must begin with the cause-effect, because I was caused to by this series of cause and effect. This is a problem because, in the ground consequence sense of the term, as Lewis says, to be caused is not to be proved. Wishful thinkings, prejudices, the delusions of madness are all caused, but they are ungrounded. In a contemporary version of this argument, in a book on the philosophy of mind by the uh, American philosopher William Hasker, he argues like this, in a very similar manner. Each mental event is, on the hypothesis of naturalism, either identical with or supervenient of. Remember that that means dependent upon, completely caused by, and not able to do any causal stuff of itself. So identical with or supervenient on a physical event. By hypothesis, the physical event in question has a complete causal explanation in terms of previous events with which it is connected according to the laws of physics. Each such event has whatever causal powers it has solely in virtue of its physical characteristics. No causal role for the mental characteristics as such can be found. Hence, on the assumption of the causal closure of the physical, no one ever accepts a belief because it is supported by good reasons. To say that this constitutes a serious problem for physicalism, or materialism about people, seems an understatement. So in conclusion, C.S. Lewis argued himself out of naturalism in part because he thought it suffered from some insurmountable location problems concerning value and reason. Now afterwards, he gradually came to think that the best way to locate values and reason in one's worldview, one's story of reality, is to abandon atheism and to locate them fundamentally in the existence of God. But that's really a story for another day. Thank you very much. <laughs>